Uh, hey, this is Russ Payne with Roblin Public Radio. This is RPPR episode 138, uh, Murphy's Campaign Concepts. And uh, with me is Caleb. How are you doing, Caleb? I'm doing good. How are you, Ross? Uh, I'm doing quite well. Uh, I have, I'm looking forward to PAX South. PAX South. Uh, we're, we, uh, not only I will be going this year, but Tom and A.A. Ron uh, will be going down to PAX South. To- oh, I didn't make fun of your announcer voice. It's yeah. Like the thing. Yeah. I might, should I? Can we get a clip? Can <laughs> yeah. we get a clip of that of Tom yeah. making fun of the announcer voice? Yeah, I'll, uh, I, well, I'm too lazy to edit that in. Uh, <laughs> besides, that's his thing. You don't want to step on his feet. I, I didn't know. I thought it was like yeah. essential for the branding. Like, uh, well, if you, the listeners, if I work at Walmart, I have to wear a blue vest. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, if I'm at RPPR, I got to make fun of an announcer voice. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> Um, well, well, listeners, yeah, I mean, you, you can comment how much you miss that little shtick that we've been doing <laughs> for a while. Uh, how much, how approaching a decade. Yeah, it is approaching a decade. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, well, we want to thank everyone who's been supporting us this entire time. So, uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about, uh, more Murphy's rules. Uh, these are unintended rule effects of various game rules. And, uh, how they can change the game. Um, I'll get a, a little more into what a Murphy's rule is. And, uh, then we'll be talking about, you know, what we should do with them. And if you can come up with entirely new campaign settings from Murphy's rules. And, uh, so, but before we get into that, uh, yeah, we will be at PAX South. Some of us will be at PAX South. Uh, I will, I don't, we don't have any official meetups or anything like that. We're just going to be attending to go to various, panels try out new games and uh you know uh, check all the video games so we can do another after hour special uh but we uh i will post if we do go anywhere meeting if you're going to pax out too and you want to meet us uh post a comment here on the site or uh tweet at me uh at ross payton and you will be officially yeah uh, in the roles for the Least climactic scavenger hunt ever. <laughs> okay. Find RPPR members. Yeah. At a Texas convention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, when they're trying to tell you where they are, like it's not a scavenger it's hunt. It's like an Xbox achievement for that. <laughs> I think it's called Really with three question marks. <laughs> Thanks, Caleb. <laughs> uh, you did a great job of support uh, co hosting there. Um, so the yeah we'll I'll post on Twitter if we do any if we, if people do want to meet us if there is uh, I'll try and set up something where we go to a restaurant or go to the uh, board games library section and uh, assuming they have one and have some kind of meetup or something like that and I'll bring postcards and buttons and stuff like that so um, but yeah I mean mostly we're going to back out to check out all the new video games and you know stuff because I remember last year they had that one video game that you had to have blood taken from you in order to advance the game uh like <laughs> do you remember that when we took i do remember yeah. reading about that and being very uncertain uncertain if it was real or not. <laughs> i mean they had a thing there like okay. the guy paid for a booth and there was a box with a little needle in it and i didn't touch it and so i assume it was real i mean <laughs> but anyway uh let's get into the discussion um so murphy's rules uh they this was originally a, a comic in um the gurps uh or first the the magazine for gurps um i think it was called pyramid and it's basically the idea is um the game rules mean one thing but the way they're written another thing happens and uh the easiest examples in gurps uh, where the penalty to fight in total darkness was like negative 10. But the penalty to fight when you're on fire is negative 2. 
So if you need some light, set yourself on fire, <laughs> and you're better off. So okay, it is a solution. It is a solution. Don't you also take damage when you're on fire, though? Well, I mean, that depends. I mean, you it's GURPS. You could be someone who is resistant or immune to fire with the, the point expenditure. Well, if you're resistant or immune to fire, set yourself on fire all the time. <laughs> Which just is actually- to fucking revel in it. <laughs> That's actually in uh that's actually another Murphy's rules in third ed D and D where you could where being on fire only inflicted one D six fire damage per round. It was very easy to get fire resistance five or ten. So you could e- so why yeah, why, if you had fire resistance in, why not set yourself on fire? I don't see how this is a problem. <laughs> uh, if I was resistant to fire, your house would be burning down right now. <laughs> and as you choked, I'd be like, I know this is probably traumatic for you, but look how fucking cool it is. <laughs> I would actually be impressed that you got here. Like, how did you drive? Like, what? What is that? It was a walk. It was a walk. I didn't need a coat though. Yeah, it was on fire. (laughs) Um. So yeah, we have. uh, uh, I'm going to give a couple examples to Caleb, and we'll kind of dissect them because. Uh, what is your policy overall? First off, uh, uh, when you come, if uh, have you ever come up against Murphy's rules in a game where like you realize the rules are written in such a way. Uh, that they're totally opposite of what they really mean to be, and you realize it could come up as an issue in the game. Well, I know, like, academically, they're inevitable because the role-playing game system is not reality. Right. And there's going to be glitches, just like there's glitches in a video game. Yeah. And they're basically just... You're basically just (laughs) glitch-playing or uh, demaking your your, uh, RPG game when you're looking at it. The only time I ever came across Murphy's Rules, naturally, was after I started writing for Eclipse Phase... When I realized the visual vehicle collision rules for uh, ion saucers meant they were the only weapon you should ever use in the game, because uh, since they, for some reason, attached like an exponential formula to it based on like speed to do an actual physics problem, you should basically only play someone jacking into flying discs and <laughs> hurtling them at things at high speeds when they basically turn into kinetic kill weapons <laughs> that do like 2,000 damage a hit. Um, but we didn't try and use that no evil. No, and I didn't, and no sane person would unless they are A, a loathsome, <laughs> unforgivable power gamer. Yeah. Or B, just a person trying to be an asshole <laughs> and ruin the game for the GM. Uh, which is, you know, again, probably CA. Uh, and the only time I, I, the only reason I literally came up with that is because I li- was having to study for a job <laughs> that chapter, like it was a tome, like a fucking accountant, and oh, I was only doing that because I was being paid to do so. Like, and so I think if a Murphy's rule comes up in a game and not like in a forum as a joke. I mean, your first problem is you have an asshole at the table. <laughs> uh, and that's that's probably something you should take care of before you write a sternly worded letter to the editor of, you know, Big RPG or whatever yeah. you're trying to, you know, correct. So um, if they come up and play unintentionally, like, I guess that could theoretically happen along a long enough timeline. I've never seen it happen. Yeah. Uh, but if someone brings it up and is like, oh, nay, nay, on page, whatever, you know, they did homework so they could be a dick. Uh, that, that's my opinion of the situation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's been my overall experience. I think, um, I have had situations where it does happen on the borderlines, uh, especially in the D and D type games because those kind of, 
are meant to be played in that way to a degree where you're trying to optimize your character. You're trying to make the most powerful character you can with as few resources as possible. Um, so – and a lot of it inter- – a lot of these are sort of academic exercises because they base- basically interpret the rules in a very specific way that the GM always has the uh, authority to like, no, it doesn't work like that, you know, or add a house rule. So uh, – but again, these these I think can be fun if you, if you look at them and try and think I, – I think one possible example is like uh, if you think of an MMO, you know, an MMORPG where the game developers clearly designed the game to work in a certain way and have certain play experiences, but uh, eventually players – when they interact with these rules, uh, you know, set in stone basically by the computer, by the programming, uh, come up with an entirely different experiences. You know, they, they come up with ways to exploit bosses or, uh, for example, like the World of Warcraft guys who found out that there was a plague boss and so that that could spread to other players. So, so you're looking at Murphy's rules as yeah. an element of emergent play yeah. in an attempt to redeem it. Yeah. Well, considering the people are going to find Murphy's rules, I think <laughs> you have a hell of a task cut out for you, buddy. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's look at a few. Because like, I, I think about this in terms of red markets because it's in there. I don't know what it is. I probably wouldn't have designed it. Probably. I probably wouldn't have designed it intentionally. But I'm sure I have Murphy's rules in red markets. And you know yeah. what? The first time somebody to the panel brings it up, I'm going to be like, all right, cool. Yeah, maybe don't do that and, and do it differently than I wrote it. And they're like, "But what did you mean?" He's like, "Man, I in us talking about this, I assure you, we've already spent more time on it than when I actually wrote it. <laughs> so let's just yeah. not and say we did. <laughs> like, and that and that should be yeah. the answer to this question. But you're you're going to make it a thing. Yeah, no, I, you got the I'm going to make this a thing. No, look in your well, eye, so. again, let, let's 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 talk about. It. All right, so the first one. Uh, a lot of these are going to be from D and D, by the way. Uh, third Ed, because it was rough. weird. Yeah, <laughs> as if that were the first mistake. Um, so in Third Ed D and D, they had crafting rules, like how much money it would take, how, like how how long would it take, and how much money in resources it would take to build a thing. And usually that's meant for magical items, but they had it for non magical things as well. Now. All of these crafting rules were based on the items had a, they had formulas for it based on the item's original value. So if you had a, gro- uh, a long sword that was worth fifty gold, it would take you you take that fifty and then you would multiply it or divide it. Blah 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 blah. blah. We, the formula doesn't matter. The problem comes from two particular items in the basic weapon section: oh, God. <laughs> the club and the quarterstaff, because. Those have a value of zero because they're fucking sticks that you can find on the ground. <laughs> yeah. So if you plug zero into these formulas, they don't work because then you have a peasant who, uh, with minimal weaponsmithing skills, can make an infinite amount of clubs in a negligible part, you know, in plank time, essentially. Uh, so like, uh, what do you do when you have a post scarcity club I- a- economy? Uh, do you know peasants making planets worth of clubs? Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I just want to be clear. <laughs> Your premise in this episode: it's let's design an entire game, or nay, as you said in the title, an entire campaign. Yeah, around that fact. Around that fact, would you? Yeah, as a challenge, like, what would you do if that was real? If that was accepted in a fantasy? Peasants were clubomancers. Clubomancers that yeah. could make infinite clubs. That could make infinite clubs, or uh, quarter staffs if you want to be fancy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, first thing I would do is have a sense of reason and taste, <laughs> and realize that that is a 
tw- you know, and think of the math, and that this is absurd, and it's not a video game in which someone forgot to carry the goddamn one, and so I can smith infinite iron daggers and become a matchstick of demon armor. Like it's not fucking Skyrim. All right. Uh, so that's what I would do. Okay. Uh, but if I was Ross Payton, I wouldn't have those things. So. From there, I would determine that nobles get their noble blood precisely by actually being humans. Mm -hmm. And all peasants are actually like some sort of spriggan plant people (laughs) that infinitely can grow clubs out of their form. So I would say that peasants are literally not people in this universe because they are just walking, talking, smelly plants (laughs) that look like people that can just birth sticks uh, of varying quality uh, infinitely from their body. And that's the reason you have to put them down and keep them to work, or else they're just going to drown the land in firewood. Right. Uh, So, yes. Okay. Um, I would also invent cars in this universe, because, you know, steam engines make sense. Oh, yeah. If you have an infinite supply of wood. Yeah. Uh, So, it'd be a very steampunk D&D universe. Oh, wow, yeah. In which all uh, poor people are actually plants. Next. <laughs> all right. Uh, the next one is one I think I mentioned to you before the um, the show, which is uh, basically taking advantage of the fact that in also in D anD D, the animate dead Weird. yeah the the animate dead spell. I have other systems as well, but um, it's mostly D anD D. As if there is a trade. <laughs> so, uh, you have the anime dead spell. Uh, you can create m- undead, like skeletons, that will obey your orders. And they will do these flawlessly as per the rules. And they can only b- obey instructions of so so much complexity. You know, like, attack anyone except someone who is wearing a blue robe uh, who enters this room or something like that. Very basic. So, the idea is obviously... Instead of using them as guardians, use them as bits, as you know, uh, uh, parts, physical components of a computer to build. Like, and the way they calculate it on various forms is like with three to six hundred skeletons, you could make a calculator uh, that could. If they were all in a grid and they could all look at each other. There's actually a scene like this in Three Body Problem. Yeah. In in the VR game, they get like all the soldiers of the Han dynasty out Mm -hmm. in a giant field with black flags and red flags. (laughs) And they turn individual soldiers (laughs) into bits. Yeah. Uh, So you want to do this in a game because you – I just – Again, I'm I'm, pro- I'm struggling with the premise. You you think this will be fun? I think it would. This is amazing. I think like uh, one. You so could, we're designing a game based off a cellular computer. Yeah. Uh, well, the idea it's a physical place. Like you have to build a. It's lit, the computer is the dungeon is the computer. Oh, I know. I yeah. Okay. No, I, I get it. All right. Uh, so I mean, there's also interesting side problems. For one thing, like how do you replicate Moore's law? Uh, in uh, scale computing, you know, when you have international bone machines uh, trying to build better and better computers, uh, they need to build, they need to get smaller and smaller skeletons so they can cram more skeletons in a smaller area that can all perceive each other. <laughs> and so uh, they they start with human, they go down to halfling, then they finally settle on pixie skeletons. 
<laughs> and okay. so sourcing that is kind of a that could be an interesting challenge. Um, <laughs> so genocidally murdering the pixie. <laughs> well, you have to. It has to be sustainable. You know, they, they have to go into alternate universes. So farming pixies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Resurrection is for pixie skeletons. You know? Well, okay. Uh, I can see this going two ways. Yeah. The first way is you throw out D and D. Yeah. Uh, and you get the Warhammer 40k book out because <laughs> it sounds grim, dark as fuck. Yeah, the pixie troughs, and then metal starts playing as you go to the pixie slaughterhouse to make pixie bone computers. Right. Uh, the other way is you throw it out, and you get hill folk out. And you basically all play necromancers, but you run it like it's a co- episode of the IT crowd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I could that actually would be really fun because, uh, like you know, fighting bugs could be literally fighting bugs, like giant. Cop- I went to the skeleton computer and all my friends died. All right, were you wearing a blue robe? What? <sighs> yes, sir. Were you wearing a blue robe? <laughs> I don't see why you're having a problem with it. This sounds amazing. Like the skeletons will attack anyone not wearing a blue robe. Uh, so, did you read the user agreement? Well, you can't sue us for. <laughs> There's the user scroll. <laughs> the user scroll. You signed. Yeah, uh, and then you can like get input through my you know programmed illusion spells to like simulate a monitor. The skeleton can see, keep asking me all these deeply personal questions. You agreed in the user scroll. Yeah, we got to collect our metadata. Why? Why can't I? die yeah the output keeps coming to that yeah you gotta keep answering the questions yeah. that good? uh the other thing is also at the the logical conclusion of this is that they reach the singularity or the scalularity uh and what happens when it's a terminator but they're actually just skeletons who are really angry that you've been using a lot of them a lot of them billions and billions <laughs> Um, so I think, I mean, and to be fair, that there, there have been variants of, there's actually been published module or, uh, like in the D20 glut of like, instead of using skeletons, having golems as computers and that kind of this thing. This is basically the plot of Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> How do we power our society? Uh, 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 the souls of the dead. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, this, everyone in who dies goes to the center of the earth and then we mine them and burn them for energy. <laughs> you didn't think that was going to cause a problem? Nah, mm, no, but I'm like, it's, it's pretty good fuel, so. Yeah. Yeah, we just burn the souls of the dead in our cars. That's, <laughs> that's a thing. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> um, the next one is actually, uh, v- relatively simple and it's again D&D. Uh, but the, the, in third ed, uh, the idea is, uh, whenever you hide, whenever you're fully hidden, it's not, it's you and your equipment. And, um, you can hide if you're in full cover, i.e. no one can physically see you because there's something solid between you and them. Now. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. So here's, Thanks for telling me that, d All right. <laughs> now here's Things the, are not visible when they are not visible. Now here's the Murphy's rule is tower shields can be used to provide full cover, uh, which is something part of your equipment. So if you have a tower shield and hide behind it, you and the tower shield are now invisible. That's fucking easy. <laughs> Monsters don't have object permanence. <laughs> They're like babies. <laughs> yeah, Monsters don't have object permanence. It's like a Witcher trick. That's how you figure. And that's fine. Yeah, you just need a rest. You take a dip behind your tower shield. Monsters are like, where'd it go? And then he wanders away. <laughs> That's actually really clever. I like that. And then it's like, is it even ethical to hunt monsters? Yeah, the, no, it's really not. They're dumb as fuck. <laughs> so it's like monsters. It's really easy to trick them. <laughs> 
I like that. I like that a lot. Um, <laughs> another one, this is, this is something Aaron would like. This is actually in D&D, but for fifth, ed, uh, fifth edition, uh, D&D. The newest one, um, a lot of the times in fifth ed D&D, instead of grant, in, you know, previous editions, lots of bonuses, you know, that added up from different sources. And they kind of tried to, they tried to get rid of it, but they didn't get rid of it entirely. So, um, you know, most of the time now, they, uh, advantage, things will give you advantage or disadvantage, except for the Paladin's Aura, uh, which will give you a flat bonus to vary your saves and, you know, your AC and all this other stuff. Uh, the thing is, Paladin Auras can stack. It's like, once you get to level 8, it's like a 10 foot around you, and then once you get to like level 12 or something, it's 30 feet around you. And so, if you had a team of four Paladins that were all within 10 feet of each other, they would have like a plus 20 to their saving throws when nothing in the game can make can like make them fail their saving throws so they basically become immune to everything at that point or they they become as resistant to damage as anything can so uh you just have this little tiny squad of guys who are all they have to keep shoulder to shoulder basically to each other but as long as they do that nothing can kill them so okay uh so our campaign is an inquisition (laughs) churches are literally uh pillars against attack uh, full of people who are faithful and through being connected by faith become impervious uh, whereas anyone who doubts <laughs> and isn't paladin enough is literally a chink in the armor and dooming us all to destruction so uh, it just gets like Spanish Inquisition over that bitch everyone's looking for the people who aren't paladin enough you ba- you basically just run it like church like actual human <laughs> church is you're constantly seeking someone who's not as pious as you to make them suffer and remove and thereby prove your piety yeah it's i i just go tragedy of the commons there man like everyone just it turns into a backbiting nightmare wow I was thinking Power Rangers. Uh, so you have, a, 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 you know, holy warriors with that have to fight <laughs> next side by side. Does it say they have to, how close they have to be? Maybe they 10 feet. Oh, know, so that's they, a shame. Yeah. I, I mean, at higher levels, it's 30 feet, so they can spread out a little bit. Well, that's even more of a shame. Like, yeah. I would allow it if they stacked, like, <laughs> yeah. literally were in physical contact <laughs> so with they're each other. All... So they have to Voltron together. <laughs> But I, I can't change the rules because yeah. God forbid yeah. that would be too easy of a fix if you you know yeah. changed a number so it was rational and sane. You, know, you you talk about people being on top of each other in there. They're, the grappling rules have some interesting rules. God damn. <laughs> uh, wait, wait. What's this from? Is it from D&D? D&D? Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> and Pathfinder, uh, where essentially the the way the grappling rules and movement rules work is. Uh, if you get enough halflings and ratlings together uh, in a pile, they can like uh, they all grapple each other and then re- move five feet away from each other in the same round. So they're moving like it's just a ball of ratlings moving at like fifty to three hundred miles per hour, depending on how many you can stack up in one one corner. So because they're all grappling and dismounting at the same time. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know how. Ken and Robin, our podcast patriarchs, have the things they always say. Yeah. Usually, like profound advice. Mine might just be don't play D anD. <laughs> uh, that might be one of my things I always say. Just well, here's one from another uh, game. Don't, here, here, oh, here, oh, here, oh, okay. Uh, we have some other game systems. Uh, one was actually that we we talked about in great detail uh, on Palladium Poisoning bonus episode. God damn. It. <laughs> Uh, Are you really doing this for fucking Palladium? <laughs> uh, just like, one. Really, just one. The entire fucking game system. 
Actually, no, because the thing about rifts in particular is how do you power? Like we had a the whole quickest discussion. way to climb a mountain is to fail descending. It. <laughs> <laughs> the entire fucking game systems of Murphy's Rule. Well, like out of all those Munchkin character classes, what was the most Munchkin? And what we after we talked about it, Foss, Sean, and I for like an hour, we figured it out. It was the Glitter Boy. But what you do is you actually as uh, as soon as you start the game, you sell your Glitter Boy, you get twenty five million credits, and then you can hire an army to do what you want. Want. So, like that—that's the, the Murphys is to refute, reject the premise of the game, and just become a rich guy to tell other people what they do. Well, oddly enough, I actually support that level of betting because you're not playing risks. Uh, true. So that's the War Games AI move. The only winning move is not to play. <laughs> Uh, in Shadowrun, uh, in various editions, uh, it turns out the most effective weapon, especially in the latest edition, uh, are actually stun grenades. Uh, because grenades in particular, uh, the way the, the rules work, they bounce off if they're near a wall or a ceiling uh, or, you know, one of the floors. And the way a stun grenade description is written, it does, well, like, times eight or times ten damage uh, if you throw it into a room, if it can hit the floor or ceiling because the damage somehow bounces off back and forth in the stun grenade. So one stun grenade will do, you know, eight times normal damage if you do it in a – if you throw it in a room. So basically it's more effective than anti-tank missiles. It's more effective than most powerful swords. Sorcery. It's more effective than an assault cannon. You just throw a stun grenade and you win. Uh, and Shadowrun readers, they definitely intended it to be that way. <laughs> it's not a mistake in editing. It's definitely not an oversight in playtesting. They're trying to show you the secret to the universe. <laughs> you and Nick Cage get together and go rescue the Constitution from where it's buried underneath FASA headquarters. What the fuck? Who cares? Just be like, oh, wait, that's a mistake. Don't do that. That's it. The problem solved. It's not a fucking secret code. You're not looking at the zeros and ones of the matrix when you see this shit. It's an editing error. God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, um, let's see here. Uh, well, going back, well, sometimes Murphy's rules are uh, not so easy to ignore. So, uh, All right, anyway, when we yeah. go back to Shadowrun, yeah. stun grenades are named stun grenades ironically. <laughs> Like you call fat guys slim <laughs> or something like that. They just yeah. so fuck someone up. Yeah. That it's like, should we use the quote stun grenades, unquote? <laughs> yes. That's that's the answer. All right. I like that. I like that. Uh that that actually explains a lot. Um so the well the, sometimes the Murphy's rules work don't work in the player's favor. Um so uh, in Pathfinder, uh, wait, those were four players. Yeah, because you load up on stun grenades, or you load up on, <laughs> and then you get to ruin your game. Yeah, you, well, uh, or yeah, uh, argue with the GM. Instead of or not. playing this video game, I'll give you a certificate that says you won it. There, you win. Uh, it's called Steam Achievement Manager, and <laughs> yeah, you can okay. use it to unlock all the all right, achievements. Yeah, all right, very good. <laughs> so. Um, in the Pathfinder uh, Jade Region campaign, they have like part of the campaign is traveling across this this vast area, and you need a caravan to do it because it's like wilderness. Uh, so they included caravan rules, and to make it interesting to player characters, you could to, to be clear, we took a dip into a game that is one of the most broken game systems of all time, Shadowrun, and now we're back to a D. <laughs> <Yeah>. Go on, <laughs> it's just there's so much about that. there's so many Murphy rules about D D because there are so many more rules for D. D&D and Pathfinder because they have published so much. Um, so in the Jade Region campaign, uh, and these are just 
just kind of examples to to, to philosophically talk about it. Um, this is philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, the concept of a Murphy. <laughs> so uh, in the campaign, uh, you have a caravan, and they have new rules for to manage the caravans. And so, like, you can choose different types of wagons that will have different bonuses. Uh, you know, all, and then, uh, you can choose feats instead of feats to improve your character. You can choose feats to improve the caravan. You can also spend gold and instead of buying better weapons and magic items for yourself, you can spend your gold on improving the caravan. Sounds pretty simple, basic, you know, straightforward. Yeah. The problem is, is that the numbers for the caravan aren't balanced against the actual encounters. So like the, the improvement for caravans, assuming you put, all your resources in the caravans to min-max the shit out of it, improve linearly uh, on a linear fashion. But the encounters go up sort of geometrically uh, so that by the – and you won't discover – in the first few encounters, it's actually sure, pretty bad. Sure, there's some really scintillating forum posts explaining this. Oh, yeah, there are. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm are summarizing. There ch- are there charts? There are charts. Oh, uh, yay. <laughs> the real fun of games. Yeah. Charts. Uh, but – by the mid campaign, there the fights are so one sided against caravans. You have to be basically roll out of natural twenties or just get the absolute best possible way you know outcomes for every single fight in order to survive. Because if the caravan loses a fight, like you know, pe- all the NPCs die. You lose all your supplies. You lose all your gold. Uh, your characters are kind of fucked basically. And so. Um, People played this game and this campaign, and then they didn't discover this uh, until midway through the campaign when they got wrecked by you know the midway the midpoint encounters. And so at this point, it's uh, they they realize most people were in the campaign. Just yeah, don't use the caravan rules. Just ignore them. Um, so, um, but it, you know, you could obviously one extrapolate like what in a world where caravans cannot survive because you know what what happens when trade no longer is possible because a single random monster will destroy any caravan. Well, I would do Oregon Trails rules and oh, just say yeah. that those people are farmers. Yeah, and that bankers start off <laughs> at like level a billion caravans. Yeah, uh, yeah, and they can carry more meat. Yeah. Uh, well, you can also. Um, well, the other uh, the other possibility is that there, the the caravans that can survive these encounters, the ones that are utterly min max and can survive them, are like become the only form of trade for the, every kingdom. <laughs> yeah. And then they become you know the new uh, emperors of the world essentially. You know, there was a post on Red Markets Group about this group that tested it out and they wanted to know more about the math of the game yeah and so i said i'm like this probability curve chart this kind of stuff and they're like no they want more math than that and i'm like <laughs> what more what, math? what more it's the basically he's like, well, like the math of like bounty per thing and this is just like so they want a mathematical like and i'm like well, that's all in the game. They're like, well, they want to plan out their whole thing. It's like, so you you want a mathematical model to predict the future <laughs> of of everything that occurs in the game? You, that's the math you want. Like, I don't have that. No one does. No one has that math. And like, those are the kind of guys they they didn't want the game. They wanted to play the charts. They want a chart game on a forum post, <laughs> a game where like, ooh, charts. Well, hey. I mean, in D and D, you know, again, like they have like guidelines for like how. You know, much- this is why I don't like the Big Bang Theory, <laughs> among many other things, <laughs> is thinking that nerddom stops at like playing D and D. Nay, nay. Yeah. It gets so much worse than that. Yeah. And so much more broken. Ah, uh, God. <laughs> 
<laughs> you talk about Murphy's psychology here? Yeah. Like, yeah, the Murphy psychology of finding these things, mm-hmm. like, and discussing them and, like, bringing them up in a game enjoyable. Because, like, the game's not broken as much as you are, sir. <laughs> uh, for thinking that, like, ooh, well, the caravan rules, this deserves four pages of Timothy Taps yeah. on the forums. And, uh, no, that's something's wrong with you, bro. <laughs> What what didn't get edited right in your in your personality? And how is this exploit working out for all of us? Wow, you have very strong opinions. Uh, it's just it just but oh god. <laughs> it's just like, well, all my guys died before the big thing, and so I guess we can't play anymore. I'm like, so why'd you kill him? He's like, well, the rule said I had to. I was like, so lie like well, you're the I'm, gm just lie just you're god like well i mean that's the thing like in the, that situation <laughs> if the gm didn't realize it until the fight had already ended okay that that would be bad i get yeah. that but the ma- overwhelming majority of these things is like yeah just don't do that like right well i mean that when that, somebody's like oh if we're all paladins and we stack up we're literally invincible right just be like no, don't get out the book. Don't take a, don't do a survey. Don't call the librarians in and start erecting a concordance. Just say no, because it's stupid. When your friend's like, hey, can peasants produce infinite clubs? You don't need to look that up. No index is required. No, they don't. We're done. Back to the actual game. I don't, I just, I, I don't fucking get it. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, they, they, I mean, again, a lot of these are, yeah, thought exercises, essentially. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> uh, because, I mean, they, you can kind of break It's like it. the trolley problem, Schrodinger's cat, yeah. and infinite club peasants. <laughs> infinite club peasants. Yes. Uh, Truly a thought experiment. <laughs> well, I think it's... Uh, what the philosophers of old had in mind. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, there, there are interesting, uh, yeah, I mean... It, if you think about it, like these murphy rules can be broken into categories. You know, one, the player breaks the game and is too powerful. Uh, two, the game breaks at a certain point in the campaign. Uh, or th- three, something happens that is totally unintended. You know, and so the in these kind of categories, like at sometimes you won't recognize it until it's too late. Uh, in which case you you either have to retcon or sort of redesign it or. Uh, as the campaign goes on, you kind of have to gradually um, – I mean there are so many – some of these Murphy rules have become so common. They've become sort of uh, tropes for the setting. I mean the whole idea of a murder hobo is yeah. is basically a Murphy's rule. So um, the idea is uh, just rejecting all of them immediately is I think kind of – I mean, I think sort of the fun is the fact that the murder hobo has become a concept in RPGs. It's a different type of character than has existed uh, in her in fantasy literature or anything like that. So, <laughs> uh, so you're saying murder hobism is a good thing? I think it's an interesting thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, and games should be about interesting things. Um, so, I mean, what the skeleton computers, especially like that, or I think, I mean, I could even defend the peasant club thing because then you have a create like the, you, imagine you know some sort of fantasy game where you enter an alternate universe where everything is made of clubs and <laughs> or uh, trying it's like a Minecraft world and you, your characters have to adapt to something where. Uh, anyone can produce anything of a given type or, you know, where the characters... By punching trees. By punching trees, yeah. Uh, but 
then there are interesting stories through it. Like you bring in something that's not made of club and everyone is like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and everyone's chasing you with their club war machines and their club golems and their club boats. Uh, so I don't know. Um, would you, I mean, so w- again, you, you seem to be pretty much like, no, just run the game as you, you t- I mean, we can do yeah. it as yeah. dumb joke ideas, but like, I really don't think you're going to do your version of like the IT crowd necro matcher, uh, nor do I think you're going to make all your peasants plants. I think the skeleton computer could actually be a great, I think you world. could have one. Uh, I think you could have one monster without object yeah. permanence as a joke. Yeah. But like, if every creature like in your whole world doesn't have object permanence, <laughs> like including humans, yeah, I think you're gonna have a hard time explaining why everyone isn't dead. <laughs> <laughs> like, so I, I mean, there you can hate. Like, I, I really think you're either hate playing or demaking RPGs when yeah. we talk about this, and I'm okay. fine with that. But yeah. like, RPGs take a lot more work than like. Playing a video game glitched out of its fucking mind and like monster factoring through it. Like, I, I mean, if you want to dedicate that much and commit to the bit that hard, fucking go for it, man. Like, right. fire Codios, but whew. Well, I mean, again, like the skeleton computer, I think would be great for like even I, uh, uh, in the dungeon world, like your, uh, 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 what is it? Colossus Archipelago. Uh, I think that would be an interesting uh, uh, adventure or setting would be, you know, entering in an ancient computer made of skeletons or golems or whatever and trying to figure out what it's trying to compute. You know, you could. Have, yeah, it's good for one game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, or this the setting that you had. Um, yeah. But um, yeah. So. Uh, oh, yeah. There. When you deal with like a player who has found a, or you know, there are degrees of Murphy's effectiveness. Like the stun grenade thing is effective, but it can only be done in rooms, you know, that where the relatively small rooms that where the radius of the grenade can reach the ceiling or floor. So yeah. if they do it outdoors, if they do it, you know, uh, and once they throw in the first grenade, they blow up the walls, obviously. So you can't do it again, uh, at least in the same room. So, um, what do you do when the player – it comes up with a more classic game design problem, which is like what do you do when one player is more powerful than all the others or and then everyone either has to copy his tactics or you have to ba- – or you just have to balance the encounter for that one player. Um, I don't know. So that yeah. – Didn't you have that happen with RJ one time where – yeah, exactly. So, uh, and that was one. And you know, I, I the reason that I actually found quite a few Murphy's rules for superhero games, and I kind of ignored them because superhero games, anything where you can design your own power can be broken pretty easily. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and that's part of the genre, though. But um, as Dennis Dotwater said, there is no such thing as a rule that prevents people from being assholes. Yeah. <laughs> like, so there's no need to write it in your game system. Yeah. Like, because you can't. It can't be taught. <laughs> it's an ingrained skill. Like, uh, so yeah. Uh, well, I mean, for me, when I think some of these Murphy's rules, I see the possibility of like, what is a world like where the rules of reality are not even like our own? So it's like, it, it, you know, exploring sort of a very fantastic realm or a very bizarre world. Um, 
And I think there are interesting implications for it. So, uh, yeah, like convincing people that you're the moon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, or can they even see the moon because it's so far away? The penalties stack up, you know, uh, and that, I mean, that's common in a lot of game settings, you know, like there are distant, there are modifiers for, uh, seeing something that's perceiving something that's very distant. So if the moon's that, I mean, you could have like the wild talent Skyrim game. Yeah. You could have your fantasy kingdom be just. Like that, only instead of Skyrim glitches, yeah, you can just have, you know, RPG glitches. You could design yeah. a campaign around living in the dumbest of fantasy universes, yeah. where like people, every the moon, a lot of people are convinced that everybody else around them is the moon, and uh, you know, peasants can produce infinite stabs and you know <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> uh, it, it, and it might be fun for a couple of sessions to be that fucking weird about things, but yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I, again, I just thought this, uh, is, I think I, I see possibility. I mean, yeah, it has to require everyone to be on board, you know, and sort of, it's also for like hardcore RPGers. Okay. Yeah. Cause these are in jokes. Like yeah. don't introduce your friends to D and D on, uh, <laughs> everyone is made of sticks night. Or or in a simple one like okay oh you're you're playing a monk and you you took that thing to give you fire resist okay well I'm gonna set you on fire like what <laughs> well you'll do bonus damage because you're on fire and it won't hurt you because you have fire resistance you know like no see that would be cool <laughs> again fire resistance is not a great example there's no reason if you are fire resistance not to constantly be on fire. <laughs> Uh, that's true. Um, if it was my first RPG and I looked out at my sheet, it was like, wait, I can't be burnt by fire. Yeah. I find oil and cover myself in it and light myself on fire. That's that's move one. Yeah, <laughs> that's move one. Uh, and sometimes the Murphy's rules again, like uh, are to the ne- are to the detriment of character and create interesting uh, penalties. Aside from that, there's a lot of monsters that, if you actually look at their abilities, would if they were around, why haven't they killed everybody? You know, like uh, not just vampires but like a lot of undead uh not just in D, but in various settings like oh if they kill someone they be that person becomes that type of undead so why haven't that why hasn't oh there these are shadows that can move through walls and they can suck someone's soul out and turn them into a shadow in a matter of rounds why aren't we all shadows at this <laughs> point um so you could have a campaign where that happens as an emergent thing where like you encounter shadows you open up a tomb and there's shadows there for the first time, and then like, oh shit, there's the shadow apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> See, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. That'd be so uh, and that could be even unintended because if you know, there, I know there are there have been D and D GMs or just GMs that are like, look at them, like, oh shit, that this should wipe out this village, this village, and this village, and then <laughs> yeah. they get kind of critical mass and like just simulating what a battle between. Yeah, no one can kill these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are sort of uh, uh, Murphys that can create interesting challenges. Uh, and certainly these things, even the things that benefit player characters, can be used against them. Because um, like the Paladin stacking, that actually doesn't mean they're invincible. It only means they're invincible while they're near each other. So then the campaign becomes a matter of encounters balanced like – the, how do the paladins stick together? Like if they're on a boat at uh, a sea and you know, the, there are waves knocking them about or if they're, uh, yeah. <laughs> so to be clear, it's like a puzzle. Your here. advice for paladin sagging is not to say that's bullshit. Don't do it. Yeah. It's to design an entire campaign around the GM intentionally splitting the party. Yeah. 
Well, he's full a- of constant walls shooting down <laughs> in between people. Uh, <laughs> it becomes like a puzzle game, like Portal or something like that, don't you think? Like, uh, oh, you, we all have to push these levers at the same time in order at, at different, pu- but we have to be split up in order to do this or something like that. I, I mean, I do admire, I guess, the certain cussedness of like <laughs> total party wiping your. Your players with shadow people and just be like, oh, we're going to make new characters. Don't do their shadows and be like, no, it's canon. And then all the new characters are like rolled in the impending shadow apocalypse. Yeah, there's only the sh- only the paladins can stand against the shadow. So it's like- but like, I don't know who has that fucking discipline to be like, it's, it's all canon. It, everything happens. Everything happens exactly the way. There's no retcanning. Yeah. There's there's no out of table talk. Your characters say everything they say. Like I I don't have that uh, resolve. I guess you could call it. I don't. I, I mean, uh, it's it's a different way of looking at it because then the encounter becomes balancing uh, against that kind of Murphy's Rule character becomes instead of like the standard like is this a fair fight? Is this something that will disable their their broken ass power or not? You know? But doesn't that sort of like require like isn't the main strategy for the in game characters to have meta knowledge of the math behind the character? So how do you express that in character? That- yeah. That's a good point. This peasant can produce infinite staffs. <laughs> like, how did what? Show me the scene <laughs> in which people realize that. Like, you know, how do you figure out that the shadows endlessly murder forever <laughs> in character without like looking at the math of it? Or how do the paladins know they're invincible once the just, fourth guy shows up? You're just those questions are the campaign there, like isn't it? Like, uh, like the, we have the scholar; he's going to try. So and- are the are, are the four paladins that because again this didn't happen? This yeah. happened meta, but I wanted to happen again. Are the four paladins that realize that they're literally invincible when they all stand together in like a square formation the first fucking people to realize that because like that would be a little bit interesting if the new game was just walking around like no everyone you gotta believe me become a paladin (laughs) and get three friends that's it we can rule the earth no one just described a great campaign yeah but like (laughs) that's very different and you're not approaching it from the direction of story you're approaching it from the direction of like I'm a min-maxing son of a bitch, and I'm going to get my other three friends to help me do my min-maxing son of a bitch plan, and, like, those people aren't going to come up with a good story like that, because they're just min-maxing sons of bitches. <laughs> they're munchkin-ass power game and assholes, and they don't give a fuck about the story in the first place, or they wouldn't be studying the game like a Talmudic scholar. Okay? Like, the, the two... <laughs> I understand you can have an interesting narrative thing as a result of it, but discovering the thing <laughs> is at a cross purpose to telling a good story about anything. That's uh, my that's my thesis. Okay, that's for your the thesis. episode. Yeah. I think you're fun shaming. So uh, fun, I'm not fun shaming. You guys do whatever you want. Uh, so because again, yeah, yeah, discovering the meta. Yeah, um, now. It's interesting because a lot of role playing games have like approached the, the, this topic. You know, there. In fact, I know you, you'll love this. In the world of darkness, there God was a it. vampire scientist who actually. Let me get my bucket of dice. 
<laughs> I forgot his name. Uh, it was a German name, actually. But uh, he actually named all the vampire disciplines, all their superpowers, and actually came, came up with terms and studied, like, generation and blood points and all this other... I actually have a World of Darkness story for the anecdotes. Oh. That it... the fans will be thrilled to hear. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't even mention there was a World of Darkness when I found out one in the new World of Darkness. <laughs> Again, one? Yeah, just one. Not the uh, entirety of the game? Not the entirety No, because Murphy's Rules are broken. Like, uh, <laughs> you, Why did you say that in the tone as if you were contradicting <laughs> Again, the entire game line? Um, but it was a, basically about a bow of doom where because of the crafting and, uh, rules, you could make a bow and make a vampire so swole he could like – shoot through four bank vault doors with one arrow. Because <laughs> that's how arrows work. Yeah. You could, like, when a character has seven hit points, he could do 60 damage. So he could do more than, like, a tactical war. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not gonna go into the math or, like, what feats he would need and all this And some shit. World of Darkness players thought it was yeah. nerfed. <laughs> because they're World of Darkness players. Uh, yeah, this and is new world of darkness. They need a outside recycling bin full of dice to roll. <laughs> is that what a world of darkness game is? You just like bring in the recycling tub from outside. You to load it with dice, and then every time something happens, you kick it over. <laughs> is that is that it? Only for an elder game. <laughs> You've got to get a running start and just like drop kick that son of a bitch. <laughs> That's exalted, get sir. That is exalted. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yeah, no, the new most of the dice was actually in uh, uh, for. It depends on the power level of the character. Newbie characters, low level vampires are don't roll many dice. It's but we were doing elder vampire games for Wad the Hack, so they all had buckets of dice. <laughs> so that, it's slight difference. Yeah, uh, that's how you know you're more powerful characters. How many dice you roll? <laughs> um, so I think um, again, it, the, the Murphy's rules are an interesting thought exercise, and uh, there are interesting campaign concepts that you can come up with through that, like the discovery of metagame knowledge in the game setting, uh, or the implications of a broken rule, or uh, of course how a how the rules as written do not do carry across the theme. Um, so rather than automatically house rule and examine the implications and decide whether or not you want to allow them in your game, uh, or if they come up, you know, uh, in the middle of a normal game, you know, if we had discovered collision vehicle rules, you know, drone collision damage rules in no evil and started, you know, one shotting exurgence with them, uh, I think, yeah, you would. I would have said no and moved on. <laughs> like a sane, rational person. <laughs> uh, except for that first time, because I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, you wouldn't even give us the one, the first time that it happened? No, because <laughs> it's dumb. Yeah, all right. Uh, you wouldn't want me to give it to you the first time. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's Minjapa. He's dead now. Done. Hey, we tried to save Minjapa's life, remember? No, like, no. If it was like a big bad boss yeah, yeah. or like, yeah, like the the under, this is my contention. Okay. The underground subway fight where you like, you were outnumbered and you didn't have your heavy hitters there and all kind of stuff. Had like there's been the big reveal and all these monsters, and you're just like flying software, they're all dead. All right, we're done. Yeah, now. let's go home. That would have been more fun than what happened as a result of it, like right. the desperate action and the heroic sacrifice right. of like if I'd just been like, No, yeah, everyone's dead now. You win. <laughs> like, yeah. Get see see you guys next week. Right. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> That's not 
that's not the premise. It's not the premise of the whole fucking exercise. God. All right, all right, that's fair. Uh, that is fair. So yeah, uh, but um, I don't know. I think it's just something fun to think about. Uh, so when we come back, we'll have uh, shout outs and anecdotes. probably have some synth wave or something you know weird <laughs> you like synth wave i do like synth wave but every time you say you're gonna do synth wave you put up vapor wave not always and like troll face me so <laughs> i don't expect it anymore <laughs> all right well first up we have uh shout outs uh i have a book that i'm uh, almost through uh, with uh, i'm reading quite a bit of it uh the alcoholic republic uh it's a book about the history of uh alcohol consumption in the early uh 18th century late uh early or early 19th century late 18th century in america uh basically the consumption of alcohol from like 1790 to like 1830 just spiked to like five gallons per person per year uh and that was over we got a lot better at making it yeah uh we did yeah and so it goes into why whiskey was so popular uh, what the effects of it were, and uh, yeah, the economics of it, and uh, it was also life was terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the reason. Life why. was fucking awful all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean there were. Well, I mean they they go into this. You know, there was a lot of uh, there. If you could, if you were a person who could save up to get a farm, things were a lot better than if you were you know like a canal digger yeah. or someone like that. So or a boatman or. A, uh, a wagon driver and so they talk about like the or a trapper you know you you spend all year trapping out in the wilderness and then you go to a uh rendezvous with all the other trappers and the company to sell your furs and they're like hey we have some whiskey for you why don't you celebrate and then you sell your entire year's worth of work for three days of you know a hangover essentially yep um they used to use it in uh the slaughterhouses in chicago instead of heating the factories yeah <laughs> they just gave everyone vodka <laughs> uh so and also like attitudes towards alcohol back then were like yeah it's healthy for you and in a lot of ways it was because water was terrible back then oh yeah they didn't know how to make it potable you know they didn't yeah boiling what the fuck you know why would you do that at least alcohol killed parasites yeah Some exactly uh and tea was un-american because it, you know it was expensive and well, until you got to prohibition like the government starts intentionally blinding people and yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that kind of shit. uh yeah well it's, it doesn't go into that it, it's just, you know, like it in the the history ends in the 19th century so it's like up until the it, the beginning of the temperance movement not the the <laughs> not all the way into prohibition but anyway yeah. it's a fascinating history uh, a lot of parallels between uh, today and, you know, talking about like, oh, people didn't trust doctors back then and like shit like that. Um, and it's just people. But you made this craft brew on your stove? Yeah. I'll have a drink. <laughs> uh, uh, the Mix 6, while I love, people have asked if they can send me in their home brews. And oh, we've yeah. had to do a, a sad but hard no on that. Because yeah. I've seen some people home brew and I'm not saying you're like them. But I don't want to die. <laughs> uh, also, the legality of shipping out. Super illegal. And I think more so illegal if you're just shipping me some shit you've rebottled in like 
yeah. your old bush light bottles or something. So uh, I, I'm I'm interested to try your you know diet chili agave right. pilsner or whatever the fuck it is, but maybe. Maybe not. Well, I mean, the whole point of the mix is to review the beer so like people can get them on their own if they yeah, like, yeah, like them. Yeah. Or to be aware of which ones not to <laughs> yeah, get. Yeah, we can't tell you. Go to Steve's house. Yeah. <laughs> He's cool. <laughs> well, wait for his wife not to be there. She does not like him brewing it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, What was one of yours? Uh, so one of mine was um, just today, mm. uh, Noah on the group me, thankfully, sent me an article by David Edelstein who is the, uh, <laughs> let's just say, psychotic reporter that spent <laughs> over a decade I- infiltrating uh, Japanese Yakuza families for Tokyo Vice, which is a very good book. Um, and uh, he did a series of NPR interviews about it that are also well worth listening. But I don't know if it's sponsored post or what, but <laughs> he basically <laughs> took the video game Yakuza 3 at a PlayStation... <laughs> And went to three Yakuza retired Yakuza members, the ones that aren't trying to kill him, because there are multiple <laughs> ones trying to kill him. He went to three required Yakuza guys, are semi-retired, as much as one can retire. He brought in a team to teach them how to use the PlayStation, and that's the real story. That's what I wish the article would go into, because like he just pulled some random Japanese teen off the street into a Yakuza office and had him <laughs> teach Boss Shinoku or something how to fucking play PlayStation. That How, how terrifying would that fucking be? Or how awesome, depending <laughs> on what kind of teenager you were. <laughs> yeah, like, you get a coupon to a host club. Yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um... The whole game is basically these three old Yakuza guys talking about the efficacy of their portrayal and the video game Yakuza 3. And it is some of the most hilarious nonfiction writing I've ever fucking read. Like, the the first detail was like, two of them had trouble with the controller because they didn't have pinkies. <laughs> And the idea is just like, Aru, you have shamed us. You shall Z-dash no more in Super Smash Bros. Chop! Was fucking hilarious. And then they were talking about, apparently the main character owns a... Owns an orphanage in Yakuza 3. And is doing Yakuza stuff as revenge for people hurting his orphanage. And he's like, I don't know. Any, and one of them's like, I don't know any Yakuza guys that don't know her for this. And one of them's like, well, I knew one. He's a good guy. And he's like, wasn't that a tax shelter, though? The, the response is, of course it was a tax shelter. But he ran it legit. <laughs> Which is, and then they argued about, could crystal meth be a power-up in the game? And it was, <laughs> I, I was just in tears reading it. It was one of the best short articles I've read online in a long time. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I've read the same review. It's amazing. I'll link to it. Uh, it's not. It doesn't take very long to get through. Uh, it's very short, but it's hilarious. It's, all it, the way. It's through. one of the best reviews of anything in the history. I, I want to play Yakuza three more than I ever have before, <laughs> which was zero. Yeah, I've actually played one of the Yakuza games uh, for the the one they had for the PS two, and it was actually really fun. Uh, but then someone deleted my save, Chris, uh, and so I, you know, didn't want to go through another eight hours. When they are, when they called him a gaijin, it's like Shh, that's rude. We don't use those terms anymore. And they're like SJW Yakuza each other? I oh god. No, they say no, you can't use Gaijin, that's rude. Yeah, he's a Gaikujin, you know. It's like, yeah, he's a fucking Gaikujin. Yeah, that's right. It was so good. (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh, God. It was amazing. Uh, let's see here. Speaking of Japan, uh, I want to give a shout out to Blame. Uh, there's a, now a legitimate English translation published uh, of it coming out, the manga. Oh, really? Not yeah. not a fan Yo, no. thing? Uh, and I've got the first two volumes of it. Very high quality printing. Uh, oh, you do? Yeah. Uh, like the Brothers. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, the, I liked that manga. Yeah, it is uh, amazing. Uh, Blame is very, very... I hope you like tall buildings. (laughs) Well, bottomless voids, infinite (laughs) structures stretching into the the horizon, uh, and eclipse phase, post-human, trans-human, sci-fi, which they explain very little. But... Uh, Life's hard to dice in cereal. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's actually yeah the fan theories of like what they're in. Is it a city? <laughs> is it a Dyson sphere? Or is it just a? There's one theory that it's a tower going from like Earth to Saturn or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just they have these robots in it that just build on for infinity. Uh, the 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 manga follows the story of one character uh, Kiri or Kili depending on <laughs> definitely Kili. Yeah, uh, who best, is best character name ever? <laughs> who is like, What's he do? He yes. kills a lot of stuff? Killy. I'm well, going on break. Well, in the new translation, it's Kiri. Uh, lame. Yeah, lame. So he is looking for a human, an unmutated human with the net terminal gene, which apparently allows them to access some sort of network. And that's about it for plot. <laughs> Weird shit happens. People try to kill him. He kills him back. Uh, he has a Glock that contains a neutron star? It's a zero gravitron emitter. It looks like a Glock. It does. It's a very small gun. <laughs> it's very noisy cricket, kind of like. Yeah. Uh, tremendous recoil, blows shit up real good. <laughs> um, and there's very few reoccurring characters other than Kiri, uh, Kili. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's quite uh, fun. So um, yeah, check it out. So speaking of kind of... Uh, transhumanist things i've started playing titanfall 2 to get my uh multiplayer fix um and if you're a fan of a clip phase in the second game which actually has a story it's not doing the shadow run multiplayer only oh multiplayer only thing like the first one did which failed like it always does uh if you're not blizzard uh it is transhumanist as fuck like you're fighting inside like Again, lots of void, endless towers, artificial structures forever uh, on Dyson Fears. And you're basically just a Jovian. Like, you have jump boots, you're a Jovian, and you're trying to get to your hard suit. And if you just play it like EP as fuck, like, it's uh, like a pretty good, you know, uh, transhumanist shooter. And then you just blow lots of stuff. You got a robot buddy to follow you around. It's fun. All right. Uh, I have looked at it. It, it does look fun. Um, uh, I've just been. I, I bought so many games in the Steam sale that I need to catch up on backlog. I did clear one game from my backlog, though. Uh, well, I, I got it in the latest Steam sale. Uh, Firewatch, uh, which is a story video game, kind of a walking simulator a little bit. Very beautiful graphics, uh, where you play Henry, a guy who is took a job as a fire, you know, Firewatch in a tower. Uh, and his only human contact is this woman, Delilah, who you talk over to the radio. And there's a lot of sort of a complex conversation mechanic where you can choose from different responses and goes back and forth. And there's like contextual clues like, oh, hey, I found the, this standing rock formation. It's like, oh, yeah, that's this and blah, 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 blah. Uh, there's a story. Um, I don't want to spoil it, but a lot of it is just looking around. It's a very short game, too, if you kind of focus on it, where you can beat in like three, four hours or maybe six if you you wander around a lot. Um, and I liked it. I mean, it's actually... It really much focuses on Henry and Delilah's character. 
um, and who they who they are and their personal problems. So it's 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 very realistic in terms of like uh, it, how it handles you know character and dialogue and that kind of thing. So uh, it's almost like you're playing in like you know a workshop uh, short story, you know, or yeah. Um, so literary <laughs> well, fiction. What would that guy from my MFA story be like as a game? Yeah. Well, it's better than that. <laughs> yeah. It's literary fiction as a game, I yeah. guess I should say. Um, because there's not, there are genre elements in that there is a plot, but like it's not going to distract from it. You know, you're not fighting zombies or bears or anything. Um, so don't get the game if you are into that, if that's what you're expecting. So, uh, speaking of story games, um, I am playing This is the Police. Mm. Uh, which is another Steam game. It is a police commissioner simulator, uh, which is a little odd. But yeah. um, you basically start the game being fired on corruption charges, and you have an 180 days to finish out your term. <clears throat> and you can make choices on either making as much money for your in- incoming retirement as you want, or like trying to be like a legitimate person, and like you're sort of deciding in the game how corrupt you are um my only complaints about it is the story cutscenes. they make it pretty fucking clear that you're real goddamn corrupt like it, it doesn't make the story doesn't quite vibe if you're like not doing some shady shit with the mob um but it's it's pretty interesting in terms of like managing your resources because you've got to do these sort of things like these sort of awful things for and and that's a, the interesting part about the game is that it's awful like it's unrepentantly racist and sexist and terrible but not to the point is like this should you do this it's just like all right if i want another detective so i can solve this fucking serial killer case i have to go beat up the gay protesters outside civil city hall for this politician so he will grant it and then at the same time, I'm gonna, I have to sell these things for the mob so the mob will stay close enough for me so they don't find the undercover guy I sent to them. So I got to make sure the stuff I sell isn't like weapons that go on the street, but only like drugs. And you literally, and so you're like really managing your level of corruption just to get through the goddamn day. Uh, but in doing so, doing all these horrendous things uh, and sort of managing that kind of stuff. Uh, and then the only part of the game that does bothers me is that you send people out on dispatches to go do stuff. And once they go, they go to the crime scene. They might need backup. They might not. And then depending on the quality of the officers you sent in terms of their professionalism rating and whether you sent backup or not, they will either catch the person, uh, no officers injured, no civilians injured, uh, catch the person, no officers injured, civilian injured, don't catch the person, officers dead or civilians dead, depending on that kind of stuff. But most of the time, if you plan pretty well, you can catch pretty much everyone without incident. But then they have to go all the way back to the precinct before you can send them out again. And so it'll be like this crime props up literally next door to where they're their fucking police cars at and it's like no we gotta drive across town first and so you have like somebody's getting stabbed to death by a gang of cannibals or something you're just like we're going as fast as we can ma'am and then like (laughs) they drive all the way back across town with the from the like false alarm where like 
No not. one got arrested. Ah, so there's they, no suspect. Yeah, they've yeah. got to drive all the way back across town before you uh. can sit about it. And that gets annoying, but it's like part of the basic resource, resource management of the game. Yeah. Don't send out too many people Always for one crime. Try yeah. and have reserves. Uh, try and build up your roster of professional. Th- but uh, it, it, you know, a Murphy's rule thing is like cops. Yeah. <laughs> if you send them all out once, if no one's in the precinct, you have from the time until they get back. That's what the payday gang waits for. Crime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens in payday. All the cops are gone. Yeah. So all the other criminals benefit from it. So. All the other criminals uh, That makes sense. Uh, they should have paid a DLC to it, you know. <laughs> Send everyone. They all die. Send everyone. They all die. The game is over. Or you can just let the payday gang do whatever they the want. Everyone in the city's done. Yeah. Everyone has died. Yeah, there's no crime except for the payday gang. <laughs> uh, that's the price they pay. So um, let's see here. Uh, speaking of horror, uh, scary things. Um, I watched a good horror movie recently, uh, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Uh, with starring Brian Cox. Oh, that's out. Yeah. Oh, so I really um, see that. on various uh, video streaming services, I think. Um, and that's a movie night. Yeah. Uh, well, it's real gory. Uh, because they do an autopsy. You know. Well, I watched Bone Tomahawk yesterday, <laughs> so I think I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you can get through Bone Tomahawk, you never get the- Jesus. Yeah. Uh, weirdly paced, oddly slow western, and then. Super Bowl. Holocaust. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just I reviewed it on the podcast. Yeah, uh, it God, it shifts gears fast. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so it's Brian Cox and I think best character on earth. Yeah, yeah, he best actor on earth. Yeah, yeah. I love some Brian. Uh, Cox. Where he's a more coroner who like they find a Jane Doe in the basement of this house. Uh, she's like in the basement, partially dug up, and there's like three other people, and they look like they've all killed each other. And Brian Cox and his son, uh, the actor who plays his son, who's like a medical technician, are the ones who have to autopsy him. And the police are saying, we have to do it tonight because, you know, uh, people – I can ex- explain the other three bodies, but who the hell is she? And they start examining her. And as they do, weird stuff starts it's happening. Delta green as fuck. It is like, very delta green. Because um, the way – I don't want to spoil too much about it, but like – the obviously the MacGuffin in this movie is Jane Doe, you know, like, yeah. and so she ain't normal. She ain't normal. So if Delta Green, obviously no Delta Green agents were involved in in the movie, uh, but when Delta Green hears about the events of the movie, like, what do they do? You know, I actually wrote something on the Delta Green email list, like, what happens? You know, when this when news of this hits the the media, <laughs> they probably Delta Green both versions of it. <laughs> try to get the co- uh, co- corpse at the same time. Yeah. So it's like a race to get the body. And then once you have the body, what do you do? Um, and that kind of thing. So, uh, also sounds like a good, like whoever survives, get to be your character for the campaign. Kind of the, one shot. Like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, but there's great acting. Cause you know, he's doing this clinical examination. There's all these oddities and, uh, it's piecing together the mystery and then the spooky things start happening. They're more and more spooky. Um, and so, yeah, it's a great short little. Uh, it's a very. It's a one location movie. You know, it's just in this basement mor- uh, morgue. Uh, it's not like attached to a hospital. It's like a uh, morgue slash crematorium. It's like a family business that they've owned for generations. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's a neat little movie. But you know, it's there's a lot of gore in it because you yeah. know they cut open a, a, a dead body. Um, and let's see here. Uh, oh, I also do want to mention uh, Curse of Crimson Throne is a new Pathfinder adventure path that's come out. Uh, I got a review copy of it. I'm working my way through it. Uh, it's very promising so far. Very beautiful book. Great art. Uh, 
And I'll try and have a full review of that in the next thing, but I want to give that a shout-out uh, if you're looking for great Pathfinder adventures. Um, you wanted to mention... Uh, I've been uh, uh, reading a series of books called The Bug Out Series by Creek Stewart. Uh, he had a like survival show on Discovery at some point with some other survival guy. He was the crazy hippie that didn't wear shoes, uh, which never quite made sense to me. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, my father got me the series along with my go bag for Christmas because <laughs> it appears to be the left's turn to turn into crazy survivalists. Yeah. Uh, which I'm okay with, but I have a skill deficit to make up with, so I'm reading it. But it's very good. It's very practical knowledge. It's got very good pictures. It's very short and it's easily uh, worded. It's. Um, is it a YA series or no? No, it's uh, a book of survivalist manuals. Oh, uh, well, okay. okay. Uh, and no, they're not fictional books. Okay. They're how to not die. Uh, and I'm currently reading um, the Bug Out Survival Guide for what you do when you leave your home. There's also the Bug Out Survival Kit, which is about what you should have in your bag, which is what my bag was packed with. Uh, and then uh, there's the Bug Out Vehicle, which I will never afford. But I have that. Is too. it like a Range Rover? Kind yeah, of thing? like how do you do that? Um, so I find it interesting for the inevitable dystopian collapse of our society, uh, and also uh, it's pretty good for verisimilitude with those like survival skills you're always using in games that really amount to like, do you lose two hit points on this leg of the journey or not? Like you could be like, you don't lose two hit points because your character knows to take two logs and put the ticks in a herringbone formation across the ground so conduction doesn't steal your heat into the earth so you get your two hit points back like <laughs> but you can at least explain and attach an image to it which is my hope i hope is the only way i ever use this book yeah uh but it is very um very much for a layman not a woods person yeah uh and it is very quick and direct and concise oh, as if yeah. you are reading it by a firelight of what to do uh, so yeah, the the only criticism I have of it is that it will not tell you how to tie knots because it thinks videos are the way you should learn to tie knots. And my question is like, I'm not gonna have YouTube, bro. <laughs> like you can download YouTube videos. We're gonna be in the woods. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I guess he's, but I guess he's saying that's something I need to practice right now, which I suppose I should learn to tie knots and shit. So, um. If you're preparing for to live in the Twilight 2000 future, uh, we are might be approaching. Uh, it, it, I recommend. It right. seems pretty good. Uh, I actually do. Have, that did remind me. Uh, uh, one shout out: uh, the complete YouTube saver, uh, which is a plugin for Firefox and Chrome, uh, which allows you to download uh, offline versions of YouTube videos, and you can download them as MP4s, or you can just download rip audio from it, which is what I use for like ripping patreon games and posting them for people to download and things like that so uh, i support this plugins development on patreon and um i like it super I, useful yeah yeah it is super useful so if you need to and it's real easy to use and set up uh so if you, i often have the need to do that for classroom stuff though. okay well you like, should get it then the youtube craps out on yeah so that'd be good uh so yeah so yeah, exactly so you can have your own copy of it of any video you you'll be watching more than once like tying knots or classroom stuff so uh complete youtube saver so uh you had a tv series you've been watching right yes uh i've been watching the night manager uh i'm only a couple episodes in on amazon um the most unbelievable part of the series is uh how attractive tom hiddleston is but besides <laughs> that uh it's a very interesting 
sort of international thriller about um, this night manager of a hotel who who continues to be stumbling into these uh, really uh, this advanced uh, plot to use humanitarian aid as a form of arm smuggling. Uh, and Hugh Laurie's the bad guy, and it's very interesting. Uh, the reason I'm liking it so far is because it has like some remarkably good spycraft, like in tradecraft stuff. But I can't tell if it's more realistic or less realistic because um, <laughs> this night manager is pretty fucking good at being a spy for being a hotelier. Like, I mean, he's a good hotelier, but he's real fucking good at doing some spy shit. But at the same time, like, he'll then do something so mind-numbingly fucking stupid. <laughs> You're just like, oh, he's playing at this. That's why he's bad. Or I'm just like, oh, come on. Because the story wouldn't happen if that idiot dumb thing didn't happen. So at this point, I'm kind of hate watching it. Because, like, it's enjoyable spy kind of stuff. And he'll do, like, he needed to get the SIM cards from a bunch of guys because they kept moving their phones. And he had a package of new phones and he looked in the package. So he went up and, and he convinced the... He convinced a waiter to bring the package up and then said to remove all their trash immediately because they're very finicky about it, lying. And then he went through the trash and found their old SIM cards. Like, that's some, like, next-level tradecraft shit. But then he'll, like, be trying to hide somebody, and he's like, all right, you need to go to this place. And it's, like, this off-site rented apartment owned by one of his cook employees. And she's like, come with me. He's like... Sure. So then the night manager leaves in the middle of the night with this strange guest and gets in a car with his phone to this strange place that, like, otherwise would be entirely off the grid. And I'm just like, what the fuck, Tom Hiddleston? Like, <laughs> don't go with her. She disappears. It's a woman in a burka who leaves in a hotel at night. How the fuck do you trace that if the owner of the hotel doesn't go with her? Ah, <laughs> uh, so that's basically my, my, uh, my relationship with the night manager is like ultimately going, oh, clever, and then screaming at it <laughs> uh, from tradecraft perspective. So, all right, uh, I don't know if I want to watch it or not. Uh, I don't know either. I'm yeah. only like two episodes in. So, uh, but uh, if you're into like spy gaming stuff, and we've certainly covered that, there, yeah. there's some good stuff to look for in it, and then there's other things to be like, oh, that's why that guy died. Because <laughs> he did this thing that's really painfully dumb. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I'll keep that in mind. Um, let's see here. You you mentioned you had an anecdote that was related to World of Darkness. Okay. Uh, so I also said I would say this on air to hold myself accountable. Yeah. So I visited Andrew Baswell in Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, friends of the podcast, friends of yeah. Sarah and I. Uh, and we went, and Andrew Baswell told me, uh, after showing me all of his World of Darkness books in his house, <laughs> for reasons that I can't understand, told me about his first World of Darkness game, which, uh, I mean, we really need him on the podcast to do it justice, but apparently involved a basement, uh, which was covered with a wrought iron gate, like, f in the interior of the house. So you went down... The stairs, you opened a creaky wrought iron gate into the basement wow. where the, the guy who was running the game lived. At, no, who was playing in the game that Andrew Rand lived, and it, which had a smoke machine on uh, and the Blade soundtrack playing. So he, 
he sort of gave me this magical vision of the 90s of what <laughs> uh, World of Darkness was supposed to you be. You don't understand what it was like, man. Yeah, that's literally how his story started. Like, yeah. you don't get it, man. You weren't there. Uh, so um, <laughs> he talked about that. Uh, and it did not sound fun, but it was at least hilarious. Uh, and I'm like, wow, weird that I didn't get it on that trend there, Daywalker. Um, so later, we'd had a few, uh, and it came up, then conversation about music, of which Baz and I have some disagreements. Yeah. That he had, did not like Radiohead, but it also never listened to Radiohead. Uh, something I which ascribe as just goddamn blasphemous. <laughs> Um, and I think this is where I probably got played because <laughs> uh, bad tradecraft don't get drunk and make bets um, so Andrew said he would listen to the entire discography of Radiohead and write me a report on it <laughs> to make up for his lack of definition if I would agree to then play in a World of Darkness game he ran and I drunkenly did agree so it's on the podcast now. It's official. If Andrew Baswell writes us all a report about the complete discography of Radiohead, I will on air play in one entire four hour, and I will time it, yeah. one entire four hour World is of Darkness. Is he going to run it? I he see. is going to run it. Did he say whether it's old or new World of Darkness? I, I don't remember, Ross. It was a drunken, <laughs> drunken bet. Let's hope old world. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, but I'm not doing shit until I see that report. <laughs> but the bet has been made. Uh, I can't welch on it now. Oh. It's on the podcast. But uh, once once we all see that report, yeah, we will know. I and I will grade it. I will yeah. check for plagiarism. It needs to be original thoughts on like Pablo Honey and the bins. It's got to go way back. Yeah. Uh, but I I will. For the purposes of musical education, yeah. run one game. <laughs> Play run game of World of Darkness. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. Have you chosen your clan yet? <laughs> I There's no report, Ross. <laughs> I ain't doing shit. Come on. Top three. What, what clans? Yeah. I don't fucking know what a clan is or what the names are. Okay. That's a Bruja thing. That's a Bruja. Yeah. Not knowing what things are? Yeah. Th- no. There's a clan all about not knowing the names of things? Yeah, Bruja. Do they have object permanence? <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, you get some Malkavia and you obfuscate. Uh, and, oh god! Or no, that's I'm doing shit. Hey, this bet ain't no. <laughs> I will walk out. That's more. Of a I venture. said the bet <laughs> so that I would be held accountable. I ain't doing shit for free. You're being oh, that's very venture. That's no, very venture. I'm, all right, I'm done. Podcast <laughs> is over. I'm taking off my headphones. Uh, I was I was going to tell you about my last night games of Armitage files, but. Uh, you're just, you really did put the, <laughs> slide the microphone away and you're, you're, you ooh, got that face and you're like, mm. all right. Uh, so in last night's Armitage Files game, uh, we were trying to impersonate some cultist to get in to sabotage the ritual and Bill being the good name that uh, GM that he is, didn't have names on hand. So he had to make them up. Uh, and we figured out that there were two, uh, cultists in particular we could impersonate that we could kidnap and then impersonate. Uh, uh, and their first names were Vance and Darcy. And as soon as we found out, I was like, oh, I'm going to be Darcy. And just immediately. <laughs> and Aaron says, God, you jumped on that. Uh, you jumped on Darcy immediately. He's like, yeah, who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we kidnapped them and put on their golden robes and, uh, 
Hopefully, well, I'm not sure exactly what happened. We, we Did would... the daughter of another cultist find you dark and alluring despite your improper cult? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Uh, Bill had some actually very good puzzles for the ritual that we had to figure out in order to interrupt it, so we thought. But then the universe ended, or I'm not sure exactly what happened. Where things happened, it, it was weird, and there were yeah, the universe was consumed us maybe. Uh, so Armitage is over? <laughs> no, it's not. We woke up in another universe. <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> you just start over. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's apparently uh, Bill's wanting to add in Cthulhu City, uh, which is an upcoming uh, supplement for. Uh, oh, man, tr- he's learned from you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is basically dark cities, uh, the Cthulhu setting. So why play one RPG when you could do a suicide it, of everything on the fountain? It's all. It's part of Trail of Cthulhu. It's an official game supplement from Trail of Cthulhu. You're like that weird kid that you go to the pizza party, birthday party, <laughs> and like you all dare each other to do a suicide, and then you do it, and then that kid's just like, I really like it, and then you just catch him drinking it every time he can, like for years, just constantly running the board <laughs> of fountain drinks, and you're just like. Man, ginger ale and and diet Dr Pepper and Fanta doesn't go together, bro. And you're just like, nope. <laughs> Put them all in there. Uh, you just have to have a more open mind. Uh, so, uh, anyways, this has been uh, RPPR episode one thirty eight, Murphy's campaign concept. Uh, Zero's bait. Bye. Bye.